0: You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students.
2: just a kid. A kid.
0: Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. We are nearing the end of our second season, which has consisted of stories loosely or not so loosely inspired by photographs in my new book, Hollywood Frame by Frame. Today's episode, the first of a two-parter, Was sparked by images taken on the set of a film called John and Mary, a forgotten 1969 romantic drama about a one night stand between a young couple who meet in a Manhattan singles bar during an argument about the Jean Luc Godard movie Weekend. The film stars Dustin Hoffman, fresh off the graduate, and Mia Farrow, who had skyrocketed to movie stardom just the year before in Rosemary's Baby. But even before Rosemary's Baby, Mia Farrow had been a household name, thanks to famous parents, a role on the first primetime soap opera sensation, and her controversial marriage to an icon of a previous generation. Over the course of a single decade, the 1960s, Mia Farrow crossed paths with Salvador Dali, Elizabeth Taylor, and John Lennon, She lived in a convent, married twice, divorced once, and went to India to learn how to meditate. When the decade began, she was a 15-year-old schoolgirl. When it ended, she was one of the key faces of her generation. Join us, won't you, as we trace Mia Farrow's life up until the beginning of 1968 in the first part of a two-part episode, Mia Farrow in the 1960s. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks, head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. Mia Farrow was the third child born to actress Maureen O'Sullivan and director John Farrow, who had a total of seven kids together. The family lived in Beverly Hills in a very nice house next door to the giant mansion of mogul Hal Roach. Mia had polio when she was nine, and was quarantined for three months. Raised very Catholic, the Pharaoh kids weren't allowed to watch anything on TV. And yet, when it was time to find Mia a godmother, her parents chose fearsome gossip reporter Luella Parsons. Mia implied that this was a peace offering, to keep the family dirt out of Luella's columns. Marina Sullivan starred in six Tarzan movies, and a lot of other movies. Mia described her father, John Farrow, a journeyman studio contract director if there ever was one, as a devout Catholic and a womanizer of legendary proportions. John Farrow had a lot of anonymous affairs, and one notable one, with Ava Gardner, who starred in his 1952 film Ride Vicero. At the time, Ava was married to a friend of Farrow's, Frank Sinatra, This affair was unlike Pharaoh's other affairs to the point that it moved Mia's mom to banish her husband to a separate bedroom with its own entrance. I thought I'd be so annoyed if I heard him coming in in the middle of the night, she told her daughter. In 1958, the Pharaoh family went to Spain so that John, who was having trouble finding work in Hollywood, could direct a movie. Mia's 17-year-old brother, Mike, had stayed behind in L.A. When word came across the ocean that Mike had died in a plane crash, the entire brood was devastated. Mia would say that her father was really unable to work after his son's death. And both parents reverted to their Irish genes and started drinking heavily. Their marriage started to fall apart, but they were Catholic, so... After her brother's death, Mia was sent to a convent boarding school in Surrey, where she stayed until she was 17. In 1962, Mia joined her mother in New York, where Maureen was starring in a hit Broadway play, A Comeback, five years after having retired from the screen. Mia's parents were still married, but they were estranged. John Farrow was back in Beverly Hills, living off of checks that Maureen sent him. He wasn't missed. Mia's mom was enjoying being the toast of the town, and she was also enjoying the attentions of George Abbott, who was directing her show. Late one night in January 1963, Maureen was out when John called. Mia did not, and could not, she emphasized in her memoirs, tell her father where her mother was, so she just stopped answering the phone. He kept calling. He called a lot. The next morning, Mia and her mother learned that John Farrow had died overnight of a heart attack. He had been found with the phone still in his hand. Money had been tight for the large Farrow clan since John's career had started to decline in the late 50s. But now, Marine and her seven kids were pretty much poor After finishing high school, Mia had wanted to return to London for college. Med school, in fact. She had wanted to be a pediatrician. She had wanted to cure sick kids in Africa. And her father had explicitly cautioned her not to follow in her mother's footsteps. He had told her that if there had ever been a happy actress, he had never met her. But after Mia's father died, leaving the family without a cent, Mia went looking for an agent. Her six siblings needed her to work. Before she found a job, she met Salvador Dali in an elevator at a party, and they started having lunch together every day. On her 18th birthday, Dali gave Mia a moon rock. On her 19th birthday, Dali dropped off a hand-painted jug in which a live rat was eating a lizard. Marine made Mia throw it out. Later, Mia had regrets. After all, it was a Dali painting. Later, Dali took Mia to a party which was hosted by a hermaphrodite and which turned out to be an orgy. The Spanish surrealist and the second-generation Hollywood teenager stood around for a few minutes watching and then left. That wasn't Dali's scene, Dali said. Sex was too violent for Dali. Soon, Mia got cast in an off-Broadway production of The Importance of Being Earnest. And then, she was asked to screen test for a new TV series, Paid in Place, based on the smutty, quote-unquote realistic, best-selling novel. When she was offered the part, and the contract included a five-movie deal with Fox, Mia agonized over what to do. She didn't want to do TV, but she thought that if she passed this offer up, she might never get another one. And so she went for it. And because she was under 21, her mother had to come with her to the contract signing. And because the contract was signed at lunch, so did Dolly. Peyton Place's pilot was shot on the Fox lot in Beverly Hills, which had become a ghost town since Cleopatra had all but bankrupted the studio a few years earlier. After the pilot wrapped, Mia was asked to go to Paris to meet a director who was thinking of hiring her to replace Britt Eklund as a nurse in a film called Guns at Batasi. When the director looked her over and told Mia she looked too young to be a nurse, 18 year old Mia lit her first ever cigarette and said, With the right makeup, I can pass for 20. With no makeup, as was her preference, she looked more like 13. But the next thing she knew, she was filming at Pinewood Studios, where on the next soundstage, Sean Connery was playing James Bond. The shoot went well, and Mia was happy and comfortable every day, until the day she shot the love scene. It was, she wrote, the first time I was ever in bed with a man. And then the pilot of Payton Place was picked up, and so Mia was contractually obligated to report to Los Angeles to film the series. Begrudgingly, Mia moved first into the Chateau Marmont and then into a cheaper residential hotel, close enough to the Fox lot that she could bike to work. She worked long hours and didn't really go out in Los Angeles. So it wasn't until she went home to New York for Christmas and got mobbed by fans whilst ice skating in Central Park that Mia Farrow realized that she was famous. Famous, sure, but nobody knew quite what to make of her. As evidenced by the fawning praise of writer Michael Thornton, who noted that Mia was, quote, neither one sex nor the other. She was androgynous. She looked like a denizen of another planet. And she was very young, not mentally, but to look at. By the time Hayden Place's holiday hiatus was over, activity had picked up on the Fox lot. Marlon Brando was shooting a movie there. Julie Andrews was on another soundstage, rehearsing the sound of music. And then there was Von Ryan Express, a film starring Johnny Payton, one of Mia's co-stars from the Pinewood movie. Von Ryan Express also starred an older actor who had been a friend of Mia's father's. One day, Mia walked over to the set of Von Ryan Express to visit her friend Johnny. And there she saw Frank Sinatra, and she remembered having met him when she was a child, But now, she was struck by his face, by how beautiful she thought it was, but also how full of pain it seemed to be. She didn't dare talk to him. But then, a few days later, she came back, and a man approached her and asked her how old she was, and she was still dressed in her paid-in-place costume, which included pigtails. So she stood up straight and said, Nineteen. And with that she was asked if she'd like to meet Mr. Sinatra. In the early 1960s, Frank Sinatra was still obsessed with his ex-wife, Ava Gardner, whom he had divorced in 1957. He tried to get over her with plenty of other women. By 1961 or so, he was still doing the thing he had done a few years earlier when he dated a recently widowed Lauren Bacall, wooing women hard, getting them to invest in him emotionally, and then suddenly dropping them. The best way to keep Frank calling was by saying no. He allegedly proposed to dancer Juliette Prowse five times. She eventually said yes, but she refused to say that she'd quit working after they got married. While they were engaged, Frank was also seeing Marilyn Monroe, who was deeply troubled and rarely lucid. Their affair, such as it was, lasted until Marilyn's death, and the marriage to Prowse never happened. Frank would always see Ava whenever they were in the same city. In 1964, both were filming different movies in Rome. At the end of a typical night after dinner, 42-year-old Ava would become incoherent and finally stumble with great difficulty off to her room alone. Frank couldn't believe the state she was in. The great love of his life? Had turned into a fall down drunk. A few months later, Mia and Frank went on their first date to a screening of a movie Sinatra had directed called None But the Brave. In the middle of the movie, Frank reached over and took Mia's hand. When the lights came up, he asked her if she'd like to go with him to his house in Palm Springs. That night, his plane was on the tarmac at Burbank, ready to go. Mia was flabbergasted. She said that she couldn't possibly go that night. I have a cat. He has to be fed. He'll only eat baby food, and and my clothes, my pajamas, my, my
1: toothbrush. It doesn't make any sense, but thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I'm sorry?
0: As bad as that was... What she was really thinking was,
1: Please forgive me, Frank Sinatra. I probably shouldn't have held hands with you. That was forward of me. I
0: gave the wrong impression. I can't go to Palm Springs with you or anywhere else either. I don't know anything at all. I'll only disappoint you. I have no pills or diaphragm. I have no clear idea of what people do, since I've never done any of it myself. So, please, let's just forget the whole thing. I'm sorry about the hand-holding. Meanwhile, Frank responded to what she had actually said. How about tomorrow? I'll send a plane for you. You can bring your cat. And he continued to say more words. And Mia was vaguely aware that she was supposed to be responding with words of her own. But he was smiling. And when she looked into his smile, suddenly, she felt like she knew him. Suddenly, none of this felt strange at all. Suddenly, she was overcome with the certainty that it would be a great idea to go to Palm Springs with Frank Sinatra. Suddenly, she wanted to go anywhere with him. So the next day, she packed a bag full of baby food, put her cat on a leash, and went to Burbank to board Sinatra's plane. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else And they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is, nope. Because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H E L P dot com slash Y-M-R-T. Sinatra's Palm Springs pad was modern with two octagonal guest houses. There was a bedroom with a brass plaque commemorating the fact that JFK had spent a night there. Out by the pool, Yul Brenner was tanning next to a red-headed woman who had tears streaming down her face. Mia later learned that Frank had originally invited the redhead as his date for the weekend. But when Mia agreed to come, he had pawned the ginger off on Brenner. From that point on, Mia and Frank spent every weekend together, usually in Palm Springs. They'd see each other on the Fox lot during the week, but he'd usually have dinner with friends on weeknights. And they had a silent understanding that, aside from Yul Brenner his circle of friends was not ready yet to accommodate the chairman of the board's new 19-year-old squeeze. Mia didn't care that Frank didn't introduce her to his friends, didn't bring her to parties. They had an idyllic life together in Palm Springs. Mia brought her horse out to the desert. She and Frank would sit by the pool and work on crossword puzzles together all morning. Mia even tried to get into golf. They'd go on long walks at night, and Frank would tell her everything about his life. When he talked about Ava, of whom he still kept photos all around the house, he looked like he was in physical pain. Just as it took her a little bit to realize that she was famous, Mia didn't totally get that her new boyfriend was the greatest singer of his generation— she had never listened to a Sinatra song or even seen any of his movies before they met. She was of her generation, and her generation was into the Beatles. Frank's 50th birthday party came around, and Mia wasn't invited. He got tanked, and some of his boys took him home, assuming they continue the party at Frank's place after they put the chairman to bed. They opened the door and found what looked like a Haight-Ashbury hippie sitting in Frank's living room. It was Mia. And this was the first time that any of his entourage that night had even met her.
2: Attracts me like no other
0: lover. They made their public debut as a couple at an annual Hollywood costume party called The Cher Show. From the stage, Dean Martin dedicated a toast to Mia with what would become a legendary line. I got a bottle of scotch that's older than you. This sounds like a hacky joke, but it was also probably true. I think I have a bottle of scotch that's older than Mia was when Dean Martin first found cause to belittle her. After they went public, their lives together became a social whirl, split between Palm Springs, Vegas, and LA. Mia missed the time that they used to spend alone together. If this was being official, she'd take being a secret. Everything was awkward when there were other people around. Many of Frank's friends had been contemporaries of Mia's parents, and at dinners, they'd sometimes bring their kids, who Mia had gone to school with. Her former schoolmates would be relegated to the kids' table, while Mia would be stuck with the grown-ups. And in Vegas, Mia was totally out of her element. In Vegas, women were expected to sit quietly, perfectly made up, and drink and smoke and maybe talk insipidly amongst themselves about clothes or cats, but always while keeping one ear on what the men were saying, so as to never miss their cue to laugh at their escort's joke. The evenings would drag on until dawn, and as an appendage, Mia got so bored she'd often fall asleep at the table. Her saving grace was Liza Minnelli, a childhood friend who was often performing in Vegas at the same time as Frank, and Frank's two adult daughters who would come visit and have slumber parties with Mia. In 1965, Mia got the paid-in-place writers to put her character in a coma. The couple decided to cruise from Cape Cod to Manhattan on a sailboat with two of Frank's friends from the olden days, Claudette Colbert and Rosalind Russell, Russell, along for the ride. After the first day at sea, the boat was surrounded by paparazzi, shooting from their own boats or from above in helicopters. Mia turned on the TV, and every channel it seemed was asking when she and Frank would get married a topic of conversation Frank and Mia themselves had never even broached. So the party just stayed below deck and never mentioned what was going on, sailing through a flotilla of snapping cameras. When a crew member fell overboard and couldn't be found, Frank finally called the trip quits. Back on the set of Paid in Place, Mia was told her character was going to have a nervous breakdown, Mia had been feeling self-conscious about all of the attention she was getting in the media and in her fan mail for her unusual looks and, particularly, her less-than-fashionable super-long hair. One day, in her dressing room, she decided to chop her hair off, rationalizing it as something that a girl in the throes of a nervous breakdown might, in fact, do. Shorter than even a gammon cut, almost a grown-out crew cut, Mia's new hairdo only inflamed the media further. Their reaction was pretty much the same as when Mia's character got a similar haircut three years later in Rosemary's Baby.
3: What's that?
1: I've been to Vidal Sassoon. soon.
3: Don't tell me you paid for that.
1: I look awful.
2: What are you talking about? You look great. It's that haircut that looks awful.
3: You want the truth, honey. That's the worst mistake you ever made.
0: In real life, Mia's new look gave more ammunition to those who thought that she and Frank didn't belong together. When Ava Gardner was asked in an interview about Sinatra's new love, she scoffed, I always knew Frank would end up with a boy. Sinatra loved Mia's hair, but Mia didn't always love Sinatra. He always had house guests, or else they went out with his entourage. They could never be alone together. And when he drank, he was sometimes scary. One night in Vegas after another night that had dragged on until the sun had come up, Frank was driving them in a golf cart from one end of a hotel to their room on the other end, when he apparently intentionally crashed the car at full speed into a sliding glass door. When both Frank and Mia emerged unscathed, Frank piled a bunch of chairs on top of one another and tried unsuccessfully to light them on fire. Shortly after that, Mia and Frank went on a break. But the break didn't stick, and on July 19, 1966, Mia Farrow and Frank Sinatra got married in a four-minute ceremony in Las Vegas. Frank told Mia she wasn't allowed to tell anyone about the wedding. He wasn't telling his daughters, so she didn't tell the family— They had a party in Palm Springs once the deed was done and then moved in together into a Bel Air mansion patrolled by a guard with a gun. Frank and Mia were the butt of jokes amongst his friends and the press and popular culture because no one understood what a flower child was doing with a man who was not only 30 years her senior but was also an icon of a mid-century America whose name had been synonymous with prosperity and stability and moral certainty. An America which now, thanks to the new values ushered in by people Mia's age, seemed like it was on the verge of disappearing. A picture of Mia Farrow and Frank Sinatra together in 1966 was a picture of the generation gap. This could have been a positive image, an image that said that love could conquer all. But that would have been spin, and a lie, because Frank and Mia felt the gap acutely Particularly when it came to politics. Over the course of their time together, Sinatra, who had been a diehard Hollywood lefty in the days of JFK and Adlai Stevenson, became increasingly conservative until he eventually became a Reagan supporter. Mia learned that the Vietnam War, which she opposed and her husband supported, was just one of many topics that was best left unbroached. Another of those topics was children which Mia wanted, and Frank did not. But even if Mia had been Frank's age, Frank was still Frank. And the history of Frank Sinatra's relationships with actresses is a history of one of the greatest male stars of all time choosing to be with the most beautiful and talented women he can find, often during periods when those women are experiencing their fullest flush of fame— and then, feeling overshadowed and emasculated by the size of his beloved's stardom, trying to get those women to choose him over their careers. Once Frank and Mia were married, she accompanied him on location shoots, but he hardly acknowledged her own work. He let her go make a Dandy and Aspic, a movie shooting in Europe, because the shoot was supposed to last only 10 days. Then, the director, Anthony Mann, died in the middle of production, which delayed things somewhat and delays enraged Frank, who was famously a one-take wonder. When Mia finally came home from that shoot, she and Frank made a plan to stay home together for a few months and then star together in a film called The Detective. But before The Detective was scheduled to start, Mia was offered the chance to star in another film without Frank, a film called Rosemary's
3: Baby, This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on Mubi is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from inland Oregon who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride.
0: It would be her first lead role in a film, and it would give her a chance to work with Roman Polanski, a young director who had already made a name for himself internationally and was now making his Hollywood debut. Paramount told Mia the shoot would be over and done within 12 weeks, and for most of it, she could stay at home in Los Angeles with Frank. Frank was initially supportive, and Mia agreed to do it. She weighed just 98 pounds at the start of the shoot, and Polanski asked her to try to get even skinnier, to play Rosemary at her sickest. Polanski would regularly ask for 30 to 40 takes, which Mia didn't mind. She was too inexperienced to know that this wasn't exactly normal. But her co-star, John Cassavetes, couldn't stand it, and time was wasted while Cassavetes and Polanski argued. According to both Polanski and the head of Paramount, Robert Evans, By the end of the first week of shooting, Rosemary's baby was a full week behind. One night during the shoot, Frank and Mia went out to dinner, and after too many drinks, Frank had a sudden impulse to fly to Vegas. This was normal for him, but this time, Mia couldn't go along. She was expected at the studio the following morning. Frank kissed his wife goodbye and then got on his private plane. The next morning, a slurry Sinatra reached Mia by phone at the studio. He had gotten into a fight, had a bunch of teeth knocked out. He was vulnerable and miserable, and he made Mia promise to never leave him. She agreed. But work on Rosemary's baby was progressing slowly, and Mia's start date on The Detective Frank's movie was ever closer. Frank didn't care that Mia was in every scene of Rosemary's Baby, that it was a career-making film for her. He didn't care that Polanski was an artist who didn't work like an old studio system journeyman. Frank expected his wife to show up on the set of his movie On Schedule, even if it meant abandoning her own movie in order to do it. He went as far as to call Robert Evans and insist that his wife be wrapped by November 14th. Evans told Sinatra that was impossible, that Mia wouldn't be finished before the end of the year. But Sinatra was insistent. In his autobiography, Polanski would say that he thought that all of this stuff with Sinatra and the detective was really about jealousy. Sinatra couldn't handle it that his wife was getting more attention than he was and starring in a movie that was much hipper than his movie. It's easy to dismiss Sinatra as hopelessly old school, particularly in terms of his attitude towards his wife, knowing and staying in her place. But for all of the changes happening in Hollywood in the late 60s, it wasn't exactly a great time for female liberation. Certainly, actresses had very little power, maybe even less than they had had during the old studio system. If Mia quit Rosemary's Baby before the movie was finished, she'd never work again because the suits would deem her a flake, And if she did it because her old man husband told her to, then she'd get no defense from her peers. In fact, she'd become a laughingstock. But if she stayed on the movie, as Frank made increasingly clear as her detective start date approached, she'd lose her husband. Trying to figure out what to do, Mia thought back to all those nights in Vegas where she had sat around all night with the other women, many of them hookers, all of them waiting for their men to pay attention to them. What Frank didn't understand was that, unlike the hookers, it wasn't Mia's job to be there in Vegas, waiting for him to give her permission to laugh or to go to bed. It was her job to be on set at Paramount, waiting for Roman Polanski to tell her what to do. Mia went to Robert Evans in tears. She didn't want to quit the movie, she said, but she had to save her marriage. Evans told her that even if she did quit, the Screen Actors Guild would punish her for leaving a movie in progress by barring her from the set of The Detective. She said she didn't care. She loved Frank so much. Evans, according to Evans, took Mia into a screening room and showed her a cut-together hour of footage from Rosemary's Baby.
2: Total silence. The lights come up. Well if ever my experience of dames came in handy, I mean Actress Dames, this was the moment. I knew what makes the head of an actress tick, and I finally found its purpose. Mia, you're brilliant. I never thought you had it in you. I want you to know something. You're a shoe into an Academy Award. Suddenly her tears are gone. Her face lights up. Do you really think so? The one thing I'm not as prone to exaggerate, Mia, you're a shoo I mean a shoo-in, kid. Sinatra who? Suddenly a smile.
0: Mia's start date on The Detective came and went, and she was replaced by Jacqueline Bessette. And then, with no warning, no call from Frank, Frank's lawyer showed up on the set of Rosemary's Baby and presented Mia with divorce papers. Mia signed them without reading them. To her, if Frank was asking for a divorce through his lawyer without even warning her, then the marriage was over. She told the lawyer that she'd do whatever Frank wanted. She didn't ask for a cent. And then she collapsed in her trailer, hysterical in tears. Polanski found her there, and at first she was crying so hard that she couldn't even talk. She couldn't believe Frank would send an employee to tell her that their marriage was over. And Polanski couldn't believe that part either. The director asked his actress if she wanted to take the rest of the day off to go home and recover. And Mia said, No, just give me another minute or two. And after another minute or two, she went back to work. When the story of Frank Sinatra and Mia Farrow's relationship is told, this is often given as the end point to their romance. Maybe because that's the way the story was told by Robert Evans in his myth enshrining memoir, The Kid Stays in the Picture. According to Evans, Mia, ultimately heartlessly self-obsessed like just about every other bitch in Hollywood, chose fame over
2: love. She didn't walk off the film, but Frank did serve her divorce papers right on the set. Wow, it's strange. Women recover real quick. It may have taken her a full week. Then suddenly the only thing she wanted was that Rosemary's baby would outgrow the detective. You want to know about actresses? Huh? The irony is, me and one satisfaction would be that the pictures would open on the same day, and I arranged that. The detective opened a real good box office. Ah, but Rosemary's baby was a smash hit of the summer. Overnight, Mia was a full-fledged star. She had one request I couldn't fill. Imagine a dame wanting me to do this, to take a double-page ad out on Daily, Variety, and Hollywood Reporter. On one side, she wanted me to put in bold numbers the theater grocer's of Rosemary's Baby. On the other, the theater grocer's of the detective. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned.
0: But that spin doesn't exactly jibe with what happened next. For one thing, Frank and Mia's relationship didn't end the day she signed the divorce papers. The couple reconciled for the holidays that year, and Mia wanted to make it work. But once the holidays ended, Frank sent Mia back to L.A., and he went on to Acapulco alone. The divorce was finalized in August 1968, and they both eventually married other people. And yet, according to Mia, she and Frank never stopped seeing each other. She told Vanity Fair in 2013 that she thought it was possible that her son Ronan, previously thought to be Mia's only biological child with Woody Allen, was actually sired by Frank Sinatra. Still, in the immediate aftermath of their initial breakup, Mia could not foresee that Frank would stay in her life. The whole thing seemed like it had been a terrible mistake. The marriage, she said, was a little bit like an adoption that I had somehow messed up. The divorce, a rushed job in Juarez, Mexico, had the, the rancid, rancid flavor of a backstreet abortion or a high-stakes cockfight. It left an imprint of personal shame. If these don't exactly seem like the words of a callow careerist, consider this. Mia didn't stick around in Hollywood to soak up the acclaim that came when Rosemary's Baby was released. At the peak of her fame, Mia fled Hollywood for an ashram in India where she studied transcendental meditation with the Beatles. Then she went to London and made an incredibly weird, quasi-incestuous movie with the exiled from Hollywood Joseph Losey and Elizabeth Taylor. And then she risked irreparable damage to her reputation by becoming pregnant by the husband of an Oscar nominee, who then wrote a song about it. Join us next time for all of that and more as we bring you the conclusion of Mia Farrow in the 1960s. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. You Must Remember This is written, narrated, and edited by Karina Longworth. That's me. Special thanks this week to our special guest, Amy Nicholson, who played Mira Farrow. Do check out Amy's new podcast, The Canon, in which Amy and Devin Faraci argue over which films belong in The Canon. It's available on iTunes via Wolf Pop. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. And please, follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We're taking a little bit of a break over the next two weeks, but we'll be back on December 9th with Part 2 of Mia Farrow in the 1960s. Join us then, won't you? Good night.
1: I was feeling-